Welcome to episode 58 of the Swamp Flicks podcast. My name is Brandon Lede. And I'm James Cohn. And we are recording in James's apartment in Mid-City, New Orleans. And this is the podcast version of the movie review website, Swamp Flicks. Swamp Flicks. <laughs> <laughs> this is a new recording equipment. Hopefully you can tell the difference uh, based on the quality of our voices if we're doing this right. And... Hopefully we don't uh, have any weird technical errors this recording. <laughs> Might be a little trial and error, but it feels good to have an upgrade. Yeah. I've been uh, going back and listening to like really old stuff we recorded. Mm-hmm. And the really funny ones are early on when we had that really shitty USB mic. Oh, yeah. Uh, and just snippets of audio would disappear. And we'd have to go back in and like add these uh, sort of like ad libs as if they were like coming off the top of our head. <laughs> I remember there was one with, uh, with Brian where he had to like come in and like had this whole point he was trying to make and he had to like re-record it. I remember listening to it. It just sounded so, so unnatural. unnatural. <laughs> yeah. It's so hard to do that. <laughs> so hopefully we can avoid those kind of mistakes. Yeah. We've hit a pretty nice groove, I think, uh, since we started editing things a little more tightly. So I'm glad to just improve even a little better this way. Totally. What have you been watching lately? Movie wise. Oh man. Well, I saw hereditary me too on Friday. I, I think it's definitely going to be one of my top movies of the year. It was so frightening on a deep existential level. It was interesting from kind of like a like sort of philosophical viewpoint, or I guess like psychoanalytic viewpoint, however you want to think of it. But then it was just scary as shit. Yeah, there's like a lot of themes of like grief and familial resentment. And like just things getting passed down generation after generation, like a curse there's a movie we're talking about today that reminded me a lot of it just because I watched them two days in a row. We can get into that a little more later, but um, yeah, uh, those themes of like parentage and like why having a child is terrifying and like what happens if you don't love your kid mm-hmm. and like things that are beyond your control when you're like raising a kid like are really strong, unnerving stuff in these kinds of like horror movies. I saw with my girlfriend and she got physically like shaken up. Towards the end of the movie, she was like shaking in her seat because the whole movie has a sense of dread. But the last 20 minutes is just some of the scariest stuff I've ever seen on film. I watched a lot of horror movies and this is definitely up there for me. I need to rewatch it Mm because, well, first of all, I didn't realize that it was over two hours long. So like when I got out on Friday night, it was like after midnight. I'm like, what happened? Like, I feel like time went by really oddly. kind of wish... Well, actually, you know, I kind of am glad that I saw it on a Saturday morning because mm-hmm. I got to walk out into the sunshine and be like, oh, there is a good world out there. I didn't like leave and then go immediately to sleep and probably have nightmares. Good thing there's no like hereditary edits where the uh, sun and moon can just like go on and off like a light switch because there's a lot of like unnerving jump cuts like that. Yeah. So it doesn't sound like you were as enthralled by it as I was. Not really. Like the first hour... I think I was struggling to attach to an atmosphere. My favorite horror stuff is like mood, you know? Mm-hmm. And I didn't really feel like the movie had like a very strong sense of like tone and mood. But the familial dynamic got really interesting for me. And then the sort of like weird ass nightmare logic and like bizarro imagery that takes over a lot in the second half really resonated with me. So by the end, I was really into it. And obviously, like, Tony Collette's performance as the lead Mm -hmm. woman is, like, exceptionally well done. And it's a really strong, like, visual film for a debut director, too. I kind of agree with what you're saying. Like, it wasn't like The Witch or something where it had this, like, really strong tone from the very beginning. But I thought it was interesting in that the dread just sort of, like, 
creeped in and then just escalated into this like manic like climax at the end, which I thought was amazing. And, and I imagine since it's a movie where a lot of the scares are stuff that's creeping in the corner of the frame and like little bits of information you didn't really know were significant at first and sort of reappear later. I imagine like going back and watching again, I'll have even more respect for it, especially knowing that it'll eventually go somewhere worthwhile. Like in the right. early stretch, I was like, I'm not really feeling the vibe of this. But I think, you know, it's probably one of those things where it's a little layered and a little like speckled with like, what do you call those? Like Easter eggs, almost like tiny mm-hmm. little, little pieces of information. Yeah. Even in the like initial funeral scene, I caught some things that came into play like at the very end of the film. So it's definitely going to be something to rewatch multiple times. I know you already mentioned The Witch, and this is like something we've talked about before on the podcast, like the idea of like A24 horror, where like the production company has this like very specific aesthetic when it comes with their like Mm -hmm. horror productions. I would say I understand why people are higher on this one than like The Witch and uh, It Only Comes at Night, for example. Mm -hmm. But I actually liked both of those movies more because they have like more of a dread atmosphere throughout, even though like It Comes at Night is a lot more stubborn, like delivering nightmare hellish imagery the way this one uh is more willing to i was not a fan of it comes at night but i will say i would put this right up there the witch is probably the top two horror movies of at least i don't know the past 10 years if not longer so anyway yeah that it's it's so good yeah i really liked it i should see it again and outside of that i saw game night finally it was fun yeah i liked it yeah it was fine um, Jesse Plemons' next door character, the like creepy cop whose wife left him. Definitely the highlight. Yeah, ran away with that movie. Yeah. I thought some of the gags kind of went on too long and they ceased being funny. But the chemistry uh, between Jason Bateman and Rachel McAdams was really good. And it was just like a light, fun thing, you know. Did you think at all about that Cliff Martinez score? Uh, it did, the score didn't really like stand out really? to me. What What was it? It's like the same synthy kind of like thriller stuff he brought to like movies like Drive, you know? It's like, oh, it's he like did the same synth soundtrack, yeah. Oh, really? I didn't know he did that. And the movie has this kind of like transition shots and things that are like made to look like a board game. Because it's mm-hmm. like a couple who are like really into board games and they end up getting sucked into this like David Fincher style thriller plot. Actually, there's an interesting parallel between uh, Hereditary and Game Night I found. And I don't know what kind of lens it is, but the way that it makes it look like a dollhouse kind of like game night did that. Like you're saying, but also hereditary, which dollhouses are like a big theme in the movie, but there were shots like that in there too, that made the environment feel like really big and almost artificial. Tony Collette's character is like an artist who makes miniatures as her art form. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of shots that are like establishing shots that just zoom into these like dollhouses she's making. And then that's the scene you see. Yeah. And there's really no distinction made between like the little houses she's working on and like the sort of like stage play that yeah. they're living out inside of it, which is cool. Anyway, the the last thing I watched uh, in the past couple of days of note was uh, Crete 2. Oh, I haven't seen that one. Did you see the first one? Yeah, I liked it. I, I really liked the first one and I love where they took the second one. It's more interesting dynamic between him and his victim where she's kind of playing him and it's like a game back and forth it's really good and it's just as like creepy and scary as the original <laughs> and it takes in like an interesting direction so i would definitely check that out too i know the 
secondary character this time is uh, Desiree Ascavon. I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, she directed Appropriate Behavior. Oh, okay. I really like that movie a lot. Yeah, she plays like a, like a YouTuber <laughs> that tries to interview like strange and unusual people and she's not getting the views she wants. So she wants to like take her show to the next level and this guy claiming to be a serial killer, she doesn't really take him seriously. So she goes and interviews him and it kind of escalates from there. But it's really interesting. But anyway, what a, have you seen anything recently of note? There's a genre movie in the theater that I guess because it had been like hyped less to me than hereditary like i was more blown away by and it's that movie upgrade that's currently in the theaters i was gonna do a double feature after hereditary but i was so wiped out yeah it's exhausting but but i do definitely want to see that it's got this like real verhoven like robocop kind of vibe where superficially the story is about this guy who has to go on a revenge mission aided by technology that like reconstructs his body you know him and his wife are like attacked she dies and he wants to avenge her death and he's quadriplegic. So he goes to this sort of like evil tech bro who implants this operating system into his brain that gives him his motor functions back. And he's still bad at revenge. Cause he's like not someone who usually like would attack people with brutish violence. Mm-hmm. And he lets the computer take over and like use his body for like optimization nice. and commits these like horrific acts of violence. Uh, he, he's like closing his eyes and his hands are just doing all the nasty bits for him. Is it like a sci-fi horror? Yeah, it's like set of? in the future. The gore is very much like shock horror. Uh-huh. Like superficially, that's why it reminds me of Robocop. You know, Robocop has those like bursts of violence. Extreme yeah. violence. Yeah. And it's also got that like sort of Cronenbergian like mixture of bio and tech into like one mm-hmm. new organism. But even more so than that like surface aspect of it, it gets the uh, Verhoeven like subversiveness down too in a way that's pretty rare where like it plays really dumb on the surface like it's this like really dumb corny action movie with all these like jokes uh the operating system in the guy's head talks to him in this like sort of how 9000 voice he's mm-hmm. like i don't think that's a good idea <laughs> uh, and there's a lot of good banter back and forth that way so it plays like a fun action movie and then under the surface of that there's this like really i think smart satirization of the way people are afraid of like self-driving technology, like self-automated cars and everything. This guy basically has like a self-driving body that he like loses control over Mm. as the movie goes along. It's just really like a lot smarter than you initially give it credit for, which feels a lot like classic, like Starship Troopers, Robocop era Verhoeven, you know? Hell yeah. I love that kind of stuff, dude. That sounds so good. It's one of my favorite movies of the year and it's really quick too. It's like 90 minutes. And you can read it two completely different ways. Like, you can either read it as, like, the dumbest, most, like, indulgent thing ever, or you can read it as, like, this smart satirization of, like, where technology is heading and how much, like, autonomy we're losing and how our, like, resistance and paranoia about that is probably not helpful or healthy, you know? Very cool. And there's also one more genre film that I wasn't quite as high on as I wanted to be, but I kind of wanted you to just know about it because it's, like, really strange. It's this movie called Mohawk. Hmm, I haven't heard of that. It's directed by this guy who did uh, We Are Still Here, which was this like ghost movie from a few years ago that everyone was really high on. I thought it was okay. And I think this one, too, doesn't really quite live up to its premise. But the premise is so interesting that you kind of like have to see it. It's set in the War of 1812 in the woods. And there's this British soldier who ends up in this like three-way romantic relationship with two Native Americans from the Mohawk tribe. And they're sort of on the run from American soldiers. 
the Mohawk people are trying to stay neutral in the war between Britain and America, mm-hmm. and the Thrupple <laughs> are uh, trying to protect their tribe from like the even more scrutiny that their like relationship brings to it. And they run into this like group of American soldiers who like are hunting them down. And the movie's kind of shot in this like exploitation horror grindhouse sort of way, even though it's like cheap digital cinematography. It's sort of harkening back to like seventies genre filmmaking. And one of the more interesting things to me, and I think something that you might be excited about too, is that uh, Luke Harper is one of the American soldiers, the wrestler. Luke yeah. Har- <laughs> what? I didn't even know he was getting into film. I, it's the only thing I've ever seen him in. Uh, it was very surprising. Was he good? He was actually really good. Yeah. Well, huh. I mean, he's playing into his strengths. He's got this like old timey American soldier in the woods with like a huge, you know, bushy beard. Like uh-huh. he always has, you know, not much of a stretch for him, but I uh, thought he was like a pretty good foil for the movie. Well, first of all, that plot sounds insane. Yeah. Second of all, like just the fact that there's a, one of my favorite wrestlers in it too. Like now I definitely have to see it. Yeah. I don't want to hype it too much. Cause I, I really do think a movie with that kind of premise has a lot to live up to because like the odds of that exact premise ever happening again like seems so unlikely and you know there's like real native american performers playing those characters so like they were really conscious of casting and stuff Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of goodwill going into the film and then like when it's mostly just pretty good (laughs) it's like hard not to feel let down by that but it's still like a good horror movie with like a really specific premise so I think it's worth seeing, uh, especially if you're a wrestling fan and you want to see Luke Harper do some... Uh, That's crazy. I, I have a hard time remembering his name through half the movie, too, because I always call him Dirty Shirt when I see him wrestle. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, now he's Bludgeon Brothers. Yeah. Is that like... That's not in the theaters, right? No, that went straight to VOD, and it's okay. been on there for a couple months. Uh, and I finally just got around to it. Okay. Yeah, it's definitely worth like a $3 rental just for like the novelty of seeing that, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, today, we're not going to be talking about genre films. Shocking. Also, this year, we've been doing a lot of, like, 90s nostalgia stuff mm-hmm. uh, between, like, the Hulk Hogan episode and... I know you just got done with the Adam Sandler episode. Which nearly killed me. <laughs> really? Did you watch every Adam Sandler movie? Oh, God. I don't think that's even possible. Like, we watched all the like, 90s ones. Okay. Like, the sort of classic era. And that's when we started having computer issues where we are like, oh, maybe we should try more, like traditional equipment so like working extra hard to get out this like adam sandler episode where i only liked half the movies was kind of like a yeah that's uh, a little absurd yeah it was a strain but this episode i think we're just going to start breaking away and do like more artsy fartsy stuff which i'm definitely on board with yeah you're always down for that i think maybe we've been a little indulgent with like we did like space jam and i can't even think of all the other stuff we've done this well, year. I'm, I'm just excited because we're going to be talking about lynn ramsey and i think she is one of the most exciting filmmakers out right now. So this episode definitely convinced me of that in just revisiting her stuff. Cause she's got like a really like, I don't want to say challenging, but like complex visual totally. style. And it's like, takes a couple revisits to really absorb it all. I think. And yeah, I got way more excited about who she is mm-hmm. as we did this. So um, I'm really excited too. Cool. And all that's coming up to you right, right now. now. It is a film which has a kind of really sort of strange, creeping social unease that gets under your skin. Now, it raises loads and loads of questions, very few of which it answers. At the end of the can screening that I saw, people came out and literally argued for about half an hour about what the final shot meant. So much so that I went to another screening and sat back in on the final shot to see whether I could figure out what it meant and came out with a head full of other ideas. What did it mean? 
Well, I can't tell you because that would kind of give away. And also, I don't know that I'm right because I then asked Mark Lawson, who's a very, very observant, um, you know, film viewer. And probably listening at the moment. Hello, Mark. He's very observant. He watches very carefully. And at the end of Hidden, we saw different things. And now it's time for our regular Movie of the Minute segment. This is where hosts of the show bounce back and forth recommending films to each other. James, what did you make me watch this time? Uh, I made you watch Cachet. It is a 2005 French psychological thriller directed by Michael Haneke, who I think a lot of people would know from directing Funny Games. Yeah, that's the only one I had seen before this. Basic plot and disclaimer that a lot of the fun of this movie is sort of not really knowing what you're getting into. There's a lot of little twists and turns along the way. So if you're interested in it and it sounds appealing to you, I would stop watch the movie and then come back and hear us discuss it because there's going to be some spoilers yeah it's kind of weird to say with like an ambiguous film like where the answers aren't sort of readily available then mm-hmm. it can be spoiled but it really can be like it's something that you probably want to see blind totally if, if you have any interest in Haneke in general and I know he's like a divisive filmmaker for a lot of people I think this is a little more palatable than funny games a lot less violent and nasty are, I guess, nasty in, like, a different psychological way. It's more, like, philosophically cruel than, uh, you know, physically cruel. (laughs) So it is about this couple, uh, George and Anne. They're this affluent Parisian couple. He's, like, uh, he hosts a show where they talk about literature and, you know, they have dinner parties. Yuppies. Yeah, yuppies. And they start getting anonymous tapes on their doorstep of just the outside of their house. So someone is surveilling them. And at first we don't really know why they're receiving these tapes. It's just kind of ominous. But as the film goes on and they keep receiving more and more tapes, there's little clues that kind of hint at something deeper. And so at first the tapes are just of the outside of the house and then they receive another one. And it has a childlike drawing of a child whose mouth is bleeding and then he receives a tape of someone filming his child at home and he receives a picture of a chicken getting slaughtered. So as it goes on, they, they're getting more and more terrified. And the patriarch of the family, George, you kind of get the sense that he knows what it's about, but he's deceptive to his wife and doesn't really clue her in about what this stuff means. But it definitely means something to him. As the film goes along, we find out that growing up, his family adopted an Algerian child who was the son of a couple that used to work for them at their estate. And it gets revealed that basically he screwed over Majib, I think is his name, and got him kicked off of the estate by essentially lying. Now, there's other stuff we'll get to that happens but that's the gist of it plot wise but thematically there's a lot going on here and a lot to unpack yeah there's like sort of this larger implication of like what this means within like france's horrific history like persecuting algerian people at large and there's like this like sort of massacre that has been sort of like buried in french history that's like directly tied to this like childhood transgression majib's parents die in and they reference it in the film. I was not aware of this historical massacre. It happened in 1961 on the Seine River 
a group of Algerian protesters were massacred. I think estimates range from like 100 to 300 were shot and drowned. So in the movie, that's how his parents die, Majib. But the French government essentially denied that this ever happened. And it wasn't for, I think, 37 years that they even acknowledged that this event took place. So in the same way, there's a parallel with George, who's basically in denial about his childhood and what he did to this kid to get him kicked off the estate by lying. And he's just completely keeping his whole family in the dark. And they keep getting these videotapes and everyone's getting frightened, but he just can't come to grips with his past. And he can't confess, really. Like, he, like, holds the secret of what he did. Until the very end, he still doesn't really come to grips with it, even at the end of the film. So that that is this underlying sort of political commentary. And the actual transgression he committed was basically, like, blocking this kid from sharing his privilege. Because the kid couldn't live on the estate, he, like, went to worse schools and became just, like, a worse-off person who didn't have, like, the same advantages that he did. Which, on its face, you could, like, he tries to pass it off as, oh, this was just a childhood lie. Like, I didn't even think that much about it. It was such a short period of time. Mm -hmm. Like, who really cares? But, like, obviously, it's eating him alive from the inside, this guilt. And uh, he knows that what he did was way worse than what he's trying to pass it off as. And everyone else around him is also aware of this, but no one's really saying it. I think that is the correct like interpretation of the film, but we haven't really gotten into what makes it in my mind, like such a fascinating, like claustrophobic psychological horror, just the idea of someone just filming your house. I mean, this is like film is post nine 11. I think where the surveillance state really kind of ramped up a notch. And there, there's just a sense of like claustrophobia of like always being watched that really plays into this like dread that kind of runs throughout the film. And more recently, Joel Edgerton sort of made a more traditional thriller out of this like same concept with the movie, the gift. It's like a Blumhouse release a few years ago. That, yeah, that is a good comparison. I didn't even think about that. In some ways it's almost like an exact remake, mm -hmm. but the way it plays out in the gift is a lot more traditional and like, the crime committed in the past when they were children is a lot more like, you know, recognizably terrible instead of like sort of subtly awful. And I think that brings up an interesting point of the difference between American and French cinema. Like that's a good example of the way that American audiences kind of do want everything tied up nicely in a coherent way that is easily interpreted. And we can leave the theater knowing the answers and go about our business I find that a lot of French like psychological thrillers like this love to leave it ambiguous in a, in a really way that's like can be a little frustrating. But I personally, my taste, I love stuff like that because I love thinking about it and trying to figure out different interpretations and what, what did this mean? But I could see a lot of people that aren't on board with that, like getting frustrated, especially the the way the movie ends. I think to some would be very anticlimactic. And it is controversial. Like the clip I opened this conversation with is Mark Kermode talking about how when he saw the movie at Cannes, critics had like a 30 minute argument in the lobby about what the final shot of the movie meant. And then he went back and watched just the ending for a second time and came up with a different interpretation that he had the first time he saw it. And then he ran into a, another movie critic while he was there and talked it out with him. 
and they had completely different interpretations that had anything to do with either time Kermode saw it himself. So the the ending shot of the movie like has all these different sort of takes on what it means and what it does not mean, how it changes the story. And I, I think Ebert too, if you read his review, he said it wasn't until I think the third or fourth time he saw there's a scene kind of towards the middle of the film that in his mind really changed his interpretation of it. So it, it is the kind of thing where you can, if you think about it, and think about the implications of some of the stuff, especially the implications of the last shot, you can kind of go down the rabbit hole. Because the central question of this film is who sent the tapes and why? To me, though, the movie's doing two different things, though, right? Like, part of it is that who done it, like, who sent the tapes. And that's sort of less interesting to me than, like, the sort of, like, larger philosophical guilt uh, that just sort of eats at the guy. Collective guilt, like, the guilt that France feels as a country about this massacre that they refuse to acknowledge. Yeah. I think it plays like a morality tale in that way. And I think the morality tale is like more interesting than the mystery. And I think the movie is actually more interested than that too. There could be a way where they would set up different suspects throughout, but it always undercuts itself. They'll show a dinner party where you're meeting all these characters for the first time. And they'll have these different relationships with the two, with the couple, mm-hmm. Julia Binoche and the main guy. And during the party, one of the tapes arrives. So, like, while you're building up a case in your head, like, ooh, I wonder if it's this person or that person. Is it the one she's having an affair with? It totally undercuts Yeah, and then the tape arrives. You're like, oh, it's none of them because they're all sitting there. And then once you find out the story with Majib, the Algerian kid that lived with them, you're like, oh, well, obviously he sent the tape. And then there's a really shocking scene about two-thirds of the way through the movie that really shook me i did not see it coming and it was one of the most shocking death scenes i've ever seen in a film it might be the one moment that actually like earns this movie it's like our rating besides maybe like a shot of a flaccid dick towards the end like for the most part it's like kind of a pretty well-behaved thriller where it's not like really pushing like any sort of eroticism or violence or anything there is just that one shocking act I guess and there's another shot of a chicken getting its head cut off that's, like, not simulated. That's uh, pretty, like, rough to watch as well, but... That scene, again, like, you feel like, oh, okay, I know all the answers and who it is, and then that happens, and you're like, oh, shit, well, now who could it be? And then they basically start leaving little clues, like, oh, maybe it's Majib's son, who, he's a character that comes into play later on, but then at the end of the movie, again, with this last shot that you really have to pay very close attention to. And when you see a certain interaction, it kind of makes you think, wait a second, what does that mean? And what are the implications? And it kind of undercuts that idea. And then you're just sort of left like, I don't know. I think what you're saying about like the difference between like French movies being okay with that versus like American films, I think that's something I want to challenge a little bit because you're mostly talking about like American mainstream filmmaking. And there is a large portion of French cinema that we're not seeing that is like their regular popcorn fluff movies. Like mm-hmm. we would have no reason to watch like a French screwball comedy that's just like their Paul Blart mall cop, you know, like we wouldn't have any reason to True. watch that shit where like Haneke is a provocateur and he like wants, you know, 30 critics arguing in the lobby for a half an hour after his movie. Mm-hmm. Uh, he like wants to spark these debates. Whereas I think, you know, we were just talking about Hereditary earlier. I think that movie 
might be a weird example because it ends on an information dump, but it. But there's still a metaphor there that you can pick up on. Yeah, and there's a lot of questions raised by question, the right. end of that. And I think there are a lot of like artsy American films being made all the time. They're just not Warner Brothers Studios. Uh, <laughs> you know, like they're, you know, little tiny places like Bloomhouse and A24 and all that stuff. I think my favorite interpretation of the ending or of the film in general, like the whodunit aspect of it, was Werner Herzog said that uh, the main guy was sending the tapes to himself out of guilt and like torturing himself. I love that interpretation. And I think that gets to the core of the movie better than any other, like maybe there's a more accurate description, especially if you see the information from the last shot, uh, which we could talk about like how that's staged a little bit if you want to, but that gets more to the core of what the movie's doing is this guy really is like eating himself alive over this guilt of something he knows he did no one's really punishing him for what he did other than like this grief that's just been like eating at his like gut for like the last mm-hmm. few decades. And earlier in the film, he actually meets with Majib's son and the son says to him, like, I just wanted to see the face of someone who ruined another person's life and like see what that does to a man. And that really what is what the movie is. Like what happens when no one's punishing you for something you know was wrong, but you're just punishing yourself. Now, you had told me, like, oh, go back and watch the final shot if you didn't see the thing you're supposed to see. And I did, and I still didn't see it. I saw half the information. There's, like, two people there, and I only spotted one of them. So I'm re- thinking about it. It's like, well, I think this actually kind of cheapens the point of the movie to me. Because that does, like, raise other questions. Like, oh, is that who did it? Where, like, that was not the more interesting half of the film to me. Well, should we say explicitly or no i think we can leave it there i like the reason it, it is confusing though is because it's staged in this really weirdly flat way the same way that there's surveillance footage of their house from like across the street that appears several times throughout the film it's like this really wide shot mm-hmm. with no focus drawing your eye it's just like a scene from a distance so you don't really notice the two characters you're supposed to notice because haneke's deliberately not drawing your eye to those two people well Okay, trying not to spoil it, because I did, <laughs> I thought that that added something to this deeper, more interesting aspect to the movie, I guess about how basically younger generations might be able to move past some of the, like the sins of their fathers. When you think about all the themes of the movie, I think it kind of ends on a note of like hope. The fact that these two characters come together that should not it should not be that they mm-hmm. know each other or are friendly or whatever. And when they do, I saw it as kind of this metaphorical like sign of hope that we don't necessarily have to be stuck in this pattern of like guilt and denial. And you're like holding people accountable too that aren't going to be held accountable otherwise. Like, right. They're not going to hold each other accountable. You kind of need to go back and like sort of reexamine the past. I think on the one level, plot wise, yeah, it adds all these other questions that maybe. It's a little unnecessary, but I think it has like a deeper thing going on as well. What's the point of obscuring that information through that like really wide shot where it's like out of the center of the frame and it's not in the foreground? Like I think because he's a like you said a provocateur and it. Oh, it's so annoying. <laughs> but see, I and I think that's like a big difference in the way we like approach a film like this. Like I loved it. I love like I paused it. And I'm looking, scanning. It's like playing detective or like a murder mystery. I understand that people value subtlety more than I do. And that shot is like frustratingly subtle. To the point of like purposely obfuscating what's going on. Yeah, why bother? It's kind of like undercutting your own point, really. I think a big part of this film is 
kind of the way the camera is omnipotent and always there. And, you know, the way the movie starts, just this static shot of the house. There's this weird like meta thing going on where we know that there's a camera filming the house like because it's a movie. But then we learn like it's a camera inside of the movie filming. It like adds this other layer that makes it really like strange which is really like in line with what he does in funny games as well where he'll like he'll like pause fast forward right, talk exactly. directly to the audience the way that julia pinocha and the main guy i wish i knew the actor's name off the top of my head it's not somebody i recognize really mm-hmm. uh but the way they like talk about the footage that they're watching and like fast forward through and stuff it almost reads like a dvd commentary or something like there's something like like you said kind of meta about it it's like a Russian nesting doll, you know, like a movie within a movie kind of thing. And I think that's interesting. I think it is also getting at the essence of film itself and what it does to our point of view. And so in that way, that last shot that, again, just feels like surveillance footage. And there's no like camera guiding your eye and telling you where to look. I think that plays into the larger themes of the movie. Yeah, and I really like the co-option of sort of throwaway footage, uh security cams, you know, cell phone footage. We've talked about this a lot. Like it's something that really sticks out to me as like being worthwhile, like ca- sort of cataloging the way sort of like pedestrian cinema works for us. Like all this like throwaway garbage. There's so many different ways to record visuals now, and it's like interestingly changing the way we interact with like recorded imagery and to not acknowledge that in movies is like pretty dishonest i think i like when filmmakers engage with like how our world is changing through digital uh, affordable recordings and i think this movie specifically is interesting because it came in the mid-2000s when like digital cinematography was becoming more the norm uh, before like film went out entirely it was like in that like transitional period and then you have movies like this that like sort of accept the inevitability of that future and sort of playing around with like how that changes their art form I know the movies you like where it's from the like computer screen or whatever, like that feels like very much a product of like the YouTube generation or social media in the same way that this one feels like a product of the post 9-11 surveillance state. There's even a lot of like news footage, which I mean, the news cycle, you know, has been increasing ever since the OJ Simpson trial as far as like 24 hour like news coverage. But just the sort of way they're having like casual conversations um, in the foreground while in the background there's like all this war atrocity terrorist attack footage sort of like playing and no one's acknowledging it. Which which again plays into the main character representing a country that has these atrocities in their past. And again, like someone that's talking over news footage of a war is just in the background uh, and we basically just like ignore it. And I really like that. In some ways, the actual videotapes that arrive, the way that those are staged and lit are a higher quality than the regular like narrative part of the movie that we're watching. The opening shot is this, by modern standards, like by like 2010 standards, it looks like, you know, how we're used to films looking now. It's got this like sort of digital air to it, but it's also just like well lit and well shot. And then it comes out of that to them arguing in their apartment about who sent the tape and whatnot. And it gets really dingy and the lighting gets less good. Mm -hmm. And it's like this really weirdly intentional choice where the videotapes themselves are like of a higher quality than the rest of the film around them. Cause he's like specifically dealing in cheap digital filmmaking as like a subject. That's an interesting point. Cause that feels, feels like it ties in with the way we 
think of movies as being almost like more real than reality sometimes. Yeah, that's interesting. I hadn't really, really thought of that aspect of it, but you're right. And that and the sort of like guilt and like philosophical moral quandaries at like the center of the story. That's what I really latched onto here. As far as like the whodunit and picking apart clues and stuff, that's just never my like interest in films. So like the idea of like pouring over that last static shot from a distance and like looking for visual information, I just wasn't engaging with that the way most people seem to where like once I saw and read like what that was supposed to mean, almost made the movie less interesting to me in retrospect where it's like, oh, these like larger, weirder concepts of like digital era disconnection from reality and like war atrocity guilt and all this other stuff like that stuff like sunk into me a lot more and i feel like that was the real meat and potatoes in the movie i think it is the meat and potatoes totally and i think that's why i would recommend this movie so highly is because there's something for everyone as a viewer if you like to play detective and pick over like shot by shot and create your own theories about what it means like it's definitely there for you but there is such a depth of message about all these topics we talked about like it works on so many different levels if i had to connect it to a movie we've discussed on this podcast before uh way back when we did a time travel episode like early on we talked about primer and there's people who have like spent years now like trying to dissect different timelines of charts and graphs who gives a shit it's not what the movie's about really like it's it's almost like this like sort of cinema sins like logical errors like goofs uh i think is a segment on imdb where people try to like point out continuity issues in movies and it's like really sort of missing the uh larger picture for the details i think yeah anyone that claims to have a concrete theory about cache and who sent the tapes they don't well i think Werner herzog got it right <laughs> well i'll say one more, one more theory one more real quick theory that i really dug besides the Werner herzog one I read one where it's the director, Michael Haneke himself, sending the tapes. That's like the same vibe I'm on. Same vibe. Yeah. And I dig it. Yeah, me too. Uh, So there's so many wild interpretations out there awaiting. But And I I like this movie about the same amount I like funny games, which is a lot. Uh, Like maybe there are individual moments and like ideas that I didn't think were like quite as interesting as others. But for the most part, I was like sort of sucked into the sickly cruel moral center that like corrodes itself and like attacks its own audience he's got like this like sort of hostile relationship with his viewers that i find really interesting he's not exactly stubborn with like making his films entertaining but he like sort of punishes you for being entertained yeah they're entertaining and you're like getting trolled a little bit at the same time (laughs) and that appeals to me yeah and it's not quite like lars von Trier level like punishing you torturing you yeah yeah it's like a more it's almost like calling you out on your bullshit i think it's a little more fun yeah too totally so the daddy bear plants his seed in the mommy bear and it grows into an egg it's just about fucking do you know what that means the boy puts his pee-pee in the girl's doo-doo. Well, haven't you ever wished you had somebody else around to play with? No. 
You might like it. But if I don't like it? Then you get used to it. Just because you're used to something doesn't mean you like it. You're used to me. And now it's time for our feature conversation. Uh, for this episode, we're going to be discussing the four feature films of Lynn Ramsey, uh, who is a Scottish director. The word that's usually attached to her is uncompromising, which I think is uh, inarguable. Like, she's not somebody who makes, you know, one for them, one for me. The reason she only has four movies out of, like, the 20 years she's been a filmmaker is because she sort of refuses to do anything that's not a Lynn Ramsey film. And it's hard to get funding for that. I heard a really good Tilda Swinton quote about her and that she's a unique talent in that her movies would not exist if she didn't make them. Like it's not like you could hire someone else to recreate her style. She is like a unique filmmaker. And there are two major Hollywood films that she was supposed to direct that she got sort of booted off of in favor of like more normal filmmakers. And they ended up being these like sort of bland films. Uh, one was The Lovely Bones. Uh, she was replaced with Peter Jackson. And you can kind of see like how The Lovely Bones, which is this like reflection, like child abuse and like murder and a mystery uh, that sort of fits in like the Lynn Ramsey like wheelhouse. Uh, she also almost directed this movie, Jane's Got a Gun. Which I believe very soon before filming was supposed to begin, she dropped out. I think she had a disagreement with the producers about the direction of the film and like the ending and they had gotten all the funding and the actors and everything was in place and she just opted out at and the very end. This is the same thing with The Lovely Bones as well. Uh, and the Jane's Got a Gun one is a uh, Western that stars like Natalie Portman and it looked okay. I actually almost saw that one um, just out of general interest. Even though mm. I don't like Westerns, I was just kind of cool to see like a female-led you know, modern Western. Uh, but there's no way that the finished products, which look fairly well-behaved and, like, standard, would have been anything recognizable to what Lynn Ramsey would have done with the material. Even when she works in genres that you recognize, the films themselves are, like, these uncompromising arts films. The term that's, like, hard not to throw around is pure cinema, where she, like cares a lot more about image and sound and how those two elements play together than like standard storytelling in terms of like plot and narrative. Like she doesn't really care about that as much as like establishing a vibe. Yeah. And in that way, I would also describe her as a poetic filmmaker. I know that term is kind of hard to define sometimes, but just her focus on, like you said, the basic fundamentals of film just sound and visuals and the way she evokes feelings just using those two things outside of narrative to my mind she is one of like the most poetic filmmakers working yeah and i honestly am a little embarrassed that i never like dug further into her career until this year i had only seen we need to talk about kevin and i've since seen all of her movies twice and was blown away by each film and, like, upon review, like, even more blown away by, like, the level of, like, detail and, like, grime. She has this really grimy, like, squalor to all of her films that, like, the texture of it's just really, it, like, sticks in your mouth in this kind of disgusting way. Well, I think that ties in to her first film, Ratcatcher. I guess we could go and kind of order. Her first movie, Ratcatcher, premiered in Cannes in 1999, made huge waves. She had 
sort of premiered these like earlier shorts at Cannes that had also gotten some like critical attention. Uh, and then she did a full festival circuit run mm-hmm. with this film. It ended up getting no theatrical distribution at all and didn't make it into people's like homes until Criterion picked it up for a DVD. And that goes into like sort of the deliberately uncommercial aesthetic she establishes in all her works. This one is more in the uh, children in poverty, like outside of adult supervision kind of cinema, mm-hmm. uh, which has been a little more common since then. Like George Washington, Beasts of the Southern Wild, The Florida Project. Florida Project, yeah. Uh, this year there's a movie called Tigers Are Not Afraid, I think is in the same wheelhouse. But I think in 1999 at the time, there were like less films out there. Also, this one feels even more grimy and dripping with despair than some some of those other ones you mentioned. Uh, partly because it's like a real event that she's depicting. Right. There was uh, like a labor strike with uh, garbage. Guys that come and pick up the garbage and the streets are literally overflowing with trash. There's this one shot on a bus leaving the tenement um, in Glasgow where the film is set that is just this long shot out of a window. It kind of plays like a tracking shot of just the piles of trash and like sort of a nonstop parade uh, on their way out of town that just like really sticks with you. So yeah, like as far as like grime goes, just the literal piling up of garbage and waste in this film is like really disgusting. There's a one shot I like of the girl using the garbage bag as like a beanbag chair. Mm -hmm. It just looks like she's sitting on beanbag chair, which is garbage. The whole film just like it's beautifully shot and framed and, all that, but the actual content of the images is so filthy. Squalid. And this feels more personal to her than most of her other films as well. Every other feature film she's directed has been a adaptation of a literary piece, whereas this film is a historical event and like a, you know, a period piece about these tenements in Glasgow in the 70s. And since she's from Glasgow, would have been like intimately familiar with this time frame. And the, the sort of conceit of the movie is that these tenements that have been condemned for being, like, terrible housing projects that are, like, falling apart, literally, the government's going to ship all of the kids and families that live there to this new housing project that isn't quite open yet. And it's this sort of, like, almost waiting for Godot kind of, like, existential crisis where everyone's moving out one at a time and the f- central family is just sort of waiting for their turn to be... Uh, like bust off to this new tenement and it just never happens like you're just sort of like stuck in this rut and in this like piling up trash where there's no hot water no like utilities outside electricity there's no like trash collection or anything the children are sort of these interchangeable monsters like the first shot of the film is what you presume is the protagonist it's this young child Mm -hmm. and then he immediately dies in like the first sequence yeah he drowns in like an accident kind of but the whole movie just man it's such a downer <laughs> like all all of her movies are like downers in a certain way i think this one is especially dark in that there's really no respite from any of it and it feels true to life too like it feels like a thing that actually happened where like her other movies are like fictional i think but i will say even though you said that there's no like escapism to the scenario i do think there's like one moment in this film that's like more out there like leaving this the situation in this like flight of fancy that is like completely different than anything else she's staged since uh, and it's when one of the kids ties his pet mouse to a balloon and the mouse floats off to the moon and lives with like where other mice other live. mice yeah 
Uh, it's like this really weird sci-fi escapism where the film's budget feels very different from what's staged in that moment. I thought that was probably the singularly most interesting moment of the film and the most like full of heart and uplifting. And also the scene where he goes and takes a trip out to the new housing tenement and he's just jumping in the grass and there's actual like sunshine and it's not so dirty and grimy. Like those were the two moments where it feels like there's some hope, but I think ultimately there is no, no hope. It's a very nihilist film in general. And when he goes to the new tenement, that reminded me a lot of the Florida project where the kids go to the old uh, condemned tenements. And it's like this like playground where they can smash things and destroy and burn it down. Yeah. And burn it down literally. But I think there's an argument to be made for any one of Lynn Ramsey's films. I think there's maybe one that sticks out to me as like not up to par with the rest personally, but I think you can make an argument for any one of them being her best film to date. And I'd be convinced. What was the one you enjoyed the least? Uh, Morven collar. The second one. Really? Yeah. See, I actually enjoyed rat catcher the least. Yeah. I kind of was getting a glimpse of that just now. <laughs> what, what do you think is like lesser than in this film? Well, I think most of her movies are, are like character studies. I just found the boy that is the central character of Ratcatcher to be the least interesting. And Movern Collar, I thought, was actually one of her most interesting characters in that it's really hard to figure out what she's feeling. And that actress to um, what's the actress's name? Samantha Morton. Yeah. Just her face says so many different emotions at once that I thought that was a really interesting character study. I guess I appreciate Ratcatcher's like aesthetics, but it didn't do anything for me on like an emotional level. I just felt like really sad. I could almost agree with you, except that when James who's the main kid, when he starts interacting with this girl who lives in the same tenement as him, uh, and she's just sort of like being bullied in these like different sexual scenarios that the question of consent is very vague in those interactions. Mm. And this is like a brutal world that they're living in. And you would think that he would act brutally with her because that's what he's being trained to do by the other kids who are a little older than him, like pressuring him into having sex with her. And But he uh, doesn't. He's very tender and kind of sweet. Yeah. And the relationship they form is very interesting to me like as far as like a character study goes for like a protagonist watching james and this like older girl bathe together and like act like siblings where he's actually connecting with her more than he does with his own family and they sort of find this really fragile symbiosis between the two of them where they're not really making their lives any better by being with each other but like they're just kind of coexisting yeah it's really sweet to me and the movie's not sweet. Like, the movie's, like, punishing and grimy and as depressing as any other Lynn Ramsey movie. And also, I think, already has that sort of, like, looseness where it's all, like, visual aesthetic and not so much narrative-focused. Especially when you get to, like, the interchangeability of the kids. I found that really impressive, just, like, to be able to establish how punishing that scenario is and then still have this, like, tender relationship at the center of it. In all honesty, I maybe part of it, too, was the Scottish accent is you know sometimes a little hard to understand exactly everything they're saying and my understanding of Moverne Calais is that was it's set in Scotland but she chose to have like English dialect so it, I don't know the accents in that one are thick as well uh, especially really? Morvern's, uh best friend I thought were like 
inscrutably thick. Really? I thought in Ratcatcher, a lot of times I could not quite make out what they were saying. But that that is nothing about the film it, itself. That's just like me as someone watching it in my preconceived you know, ideas. I will say that all four of her films, even the two that have like American actors, I think they all benefit from subtitles at least once. Even though they're not very like dialogue based, her dialogue is mixed so low and it's not meant to be heard in some ways. And uh, you were never really here. Like Joaquin Phoenix mumbles through a good chunk of the movie. And I know that's sort of his style and that's her style to mix the dialogue low, but it does make it a little hard to figure out. Yeah, I was like leaning forward in my seat trying to hear certain dialogue in that film. And then I guess at some point you're supposed to accept like it doesn't really matter. It's like plot's not the first thing that commands the picture but you still want to know what you're hearing one i think maybe the point is like she evokes feeling so well that the dialogue is kind of unnecessary in the sense that you sort of know what the characters are feeling without having to hear them say it you can just look at them and hear the music and i think that goes to her strength as a filmmaker all of her movies that's one thing i noticed watching them all recently is that they're really light on dialogue in a way that other filmmakers uh, aren't. Maybe even Ratcatcher would be the one that has the most dialogue. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the gap between Ratcatcher and Morven Collar was the shortest out of all of her films. Uh, Morven Collar came out in 2002. Uh, so this is three years after Ratcatcher premiered at Cannes. And I feel like the jump to Morven Collar is her realizing what her visual aesthetic is like she sort of breaks away from anything you could recognize like traditional filmmaking where this one's like completely detached and it's kind of a movie about a druggy haze uh, mixed with like grief where you're like stunned and the movie just sort of stumbles through its various scenarios without any particular like I don't want to say without a point to it but without like a destination in mind and you sort of just like drift in a haze along with the main character yeah and I think she's a really complex character that has a lot of layers and you can't quite put your finger on what she's feeling at any given moment. I mean, the movie starts with her boyfriend committing suicide in their apartment on Christmas and her reaction. I I get a sense that she's sad, but then the way that she handles his death kind of leaving him there on the floor, like going out, getting wasted and then coming back and stealing cash out of his pocket, stealing cash. Like, he leaves her his bank account info for like a proper funeral. And she just decides to cut up his body and bury him somewhere. So she has this like almost sociopathic side to her, like who could do that. But then she also seems like she's really distraught about it too, or doesn't know how to handle it. I I bought it as like a state of like total shock, where she's like in a stupor. And it seems like her and her boyfriend were these like party animals, or at least they're like connected to this druggy, uh, Scottish party scene where they don't really deal with life and emotions directly. They yeah. sort of like just sort of ignore them to entertain their like pleasure principles. Her best friend throughout the movie, she's a little more hedonistic. I think I think that throughout the movie, Moverne like kind of sees how the scene is sort of messed up and doesn't actually fulfill her in any way and the people around her are just pumping themselves filled with like ecstasy and alcohol. And I think that's her trajectory as a character. She kind of finds that she's not really about that anymore. 
But it's again, it's hard because you get a lot of conflicting messages with her. It's weird because like early in the film, she almost seems more like a raccoon or an opossum like than a regular person. The one scene where we see her preparing a meal for herself, she like just tears open this like frozen pizza from the freezer and throws it directly in the oven and then burns it. While she's hacking her dead boyfriend's body in the bathtub. And listening to like the mixtape that he made for her. Which it's worth mentioning that mixtape is so fucking good. Like, yeah. <laughs> so many good bands. Dude, like Can, Boards of Canada. Stereo Lab, Broadcast, Velvet Underground, Ween. Like, yeah. I, and that goes to a larger trend in her films where the music is always so good. Yeah. Even in Ratcatcher, there's a really great like dance sequence to like Lollipop and mm-hmm. you know, like a good 60s pop music that the mother character in that movie would have been into when she was a teenager tr- trying to get her kids into like this like nostalgic groove in the 70s but yeah by the time you get to Morven Collar the movie itself is almost like a mixtape where like the way we're describing this sort of linear narrative like this woman trying to get over her grief by it's, it's not it's really loose it's a weird collage and I think my favorite sequence Lynn Ramsey's ever staged in her entire career even though I think Morven Collar my, my least favorite out of all her films is Right after her boyfriend dies, Morvern goes to this party in someone's living room. It's like a Christmas dance party. It's really wild and chaotic. People are taking off their shirts, dancing around a fire, smashing glass everywhere. And then she sort of drifts off into this like sort of boggy area where there's this guy on like a fishing ship who shines a a spotlight on her. And she hitches up her skirt. God, that it was so eerie and like reminded me of like David Lynch. So Lynchian, yeah. Whoa, dude. I, that's funny you bring that up. That was also my, again, I would totally agree with you. Maybe my favorite singular scene in anything. She's just the sense of like creepiness. That eerie calm in the middle of all that total chaos is just like gets under my skin so hard. And that's why I'm saying like, I think a convincing argument could be made that any one of her films is her best film to date. Cause I could see someone latching on to that disgusting squalor mm-hmm. uh, and like feeling like, the, Oh, that's what, what affected me most. You know, when I re- reviewed this movie on the site earlier this year, uh, this was the description I came up with. The movie feels less like a original screenplay than it does like a feature film adaptation of a crumpled up Polaroid Ramsey found in a sewer. Like as far as like the griminess goes in all of her films, even though Ratcatcher has like the piles of trash and you know, all this like, filth that's just not being taken out of this like small tenement Morven Collar has this like disgusting like straight from the id griminess to it that never gets any better even when she runs away from Scotland and goes on this like trip to Spain yeah which is interesting because she goes from Glasgow where it's very cloudy and just kind of dreary and she goes on this vacation Spain is like so vibrant and bright it's almost like two movies like you have the Glasgow stuff, and then she's trying to escape it all, go on this hedonistic trip uh, to and Spain. She's kind of finding herself, like it's kind almost of, like but... eat, pray, love, but it's like drink, decay, rot. Like it's like she like escapes Glasgow to go on this like sort of spiritual mission, but it's the same relentless partying hedonism that she was trying to run away from. Although there is a moment where she escapes like out of the central tourist spot and goes to like this small little village and essentially walks through the desert for a while. So that's kind of the, the moment I thought where her character was sort of coming into her own, like realizing I want to get away from all the, the chaos, but it's really hard to project those things onto her. Cause 
again, it's very collage like. Yeah, and I kind of wonder what the novel would even be in comparison to the movie because there's kind of a plot here. Like her boyfriend kills himself and he leaves her money for a funeral and he leaves a manuscript for a novel for her to submit to publishers and she steals the money and chops him up and buries him herself. She puts her name on the screenplay as if she wrote it and sells it for even more money. And it's like not enough money that she could live off of it forever. It's like this sort of chasing your immediate pleasures kind of mission that she's on. And I wonder how that would play out on the page. Cause here it's very like fractured where you're almost in the same druggy stupor that she's in the whole time. From what I read online, I think most fans of the book agree that Ramsey did a really good job of invoking like kind of what the book is about and like her character. One thing as far as her, you know, taking the money and forging this manuscript and selling it as her own. One thing we haven't touched on with this film that I think is really important is the class element in that she is a grocery store clerk. And it's interesting to me that she lives with this guy that seems to have a lot of money or is doing pretty well for himself. I mean, he's got a nice flat. He's got sculptures, lots of records. He's a, he has time to be a writer. And then he kills himself. And the suicide note is sort of telling her like, Oh, here's money for this funeral. Like, arrange it for me like basically telling her to clean up his mess in a way and she kind of says fuck that and like no i'm gonna like take your manuscript as my own i'm gonna live in this apartment as if it's mine i'm gonna like leave my job at the grocery store it seemed like there's this big class thing he's like almost treating her like staff but but at the same time i would understand why someone would leave that person detailed instructions because she can't even make a frozen pizza without almost burning her apartment down. <laughs> well, also, though, he's referenced there's someone at a bar that asks her, like, oh, where's your Dostoevsky? In that even though we don't meet him as a character, I get the sense that he's this, like, young male intellectual type. And again, I think their relationship was centered a lot around drinking and partying. And then he kills himself and literally leaves it to her to clean up the mess. And... Again, like I think there's a certain liberation in not going along with that and just taking the money, going on a trip to Spain, disposing of the body and kind of not being beholden to like him anymore. But over time, you do see that long term consequence sort of creeping up on her. Like she's chasing these like immediate pleasures and that road doesn't go that far. Like, (laughs) right. And we don't get to see any of the aftermath of what happens once all that money dries up. But but again, that it just adds to the complexity of her character. I don't know. It was actually one of my favorite ones of hers that I saw. But like you said, it's hard to really rank them. Like I said, any one of them, you can make an argument where I would believe you. Like, <laughs> yeah. oh yeah, that is her best. And after this movie is when she almost got the lovely bones and Peter Jackson ended up directing the movie instead. And when that movie failed critically, uh, she basically said like, yeah, he adapted the novel too closely. I would have done way less and just sort of captured the atmosphere of it which sounds a lot like what you were saying about Morvan Collar where like fans of the book were like well maybe it was a little inscrutable and didn't cover all the plot but she got like the mood of the book totally and the next literary adaptation she did was we need to talk about Kevin which I also imagine was not anything like the book even though it had a lot of snippets of it (laughs) this was from 2011 um, starring Tilda Swinton as a mother to a child eventually played by Ezra Miller, played by a bunch of other people in the meantime. 
this was delayed for a long time for different production issues. A lot of money was wasted in that wait to the point where she had to like rewrite uh, certain scenes to like limit the budget. But I don't know if it's only because this was the first one I saw in my first introduction to Lynn Ramsey and I've seen it more times than the other ones, but I still think this might be like her crowning achievement to date. This is my favorite as well. And it was actually my introduction to her too. I think what sets this one apart is visually it is so exciting. Uh, And I think this is where she really came into her own as like a visual filmmaker. I mean, the way the colors pop and the way she like frames shots and the use of music and the dark subject matter. I really think so far this is her masterpiece. On a thematic level, this movie is about two things. On one hand, it's like one of these like why you shouldn't have children style horror films like, you know, The Babadook or Hereditary. Yeah, or like the horror of raising a child you don't want or even though you don't want to admit it, you don't like them, but you're stuck with them. Yeah, like familial resentment where you're like tied to something that you don't necessarily connect with the way you're supposed to. Uh, And on another level, this is also like a school shooting drama because the climactic event that makes Tilda Swinton's character like a public pariah is that the son she raised that she never loved in the first place because he's a sociopath and no one saw even from when he was a baby that uh, he was like subhuman in his cruelty shoots up his school with like a bow and arrow and she is sort of left to deal with the consequences after he goes to prison she's the one that's like take all the public scorn for like someone else's sins and i think you could make either one of those thematic bases for a movie into something much more conventional than what happens here like this movie's like sort of doled out in memories and relapsing thoughts and confused timelines and just weird imagery to describe it in words is really not going to ever do it justice as opposed to like watching it where like it elevates the sort of like base thematic material into this like otherworldly art piece. A third thing I would add to kind of the, what this movie is about and it's tied to the kind of hereditary familial relationships. But even though her son did this objectively horrible thing and he is a psychopath, there's a lot of, interesting scenes throughout where you see similarities between her and her son. So there's that too. It's like hating this thing. You wish you never had it, but also the horror of realizing that it's a part of you and it shares a lot of your same traits. And that, that I think is similar and they look similar. And like that is terrifying as well. And I think there probably could be a more like adventurous reading of the film where like, her resentment of her kid was unjust and the way she raised him because of how she interacted with him and all the stuff that was like actually in her head sort of caused him to come out sociopathic because he was raised without love. Well, and she did break his arm in one scene. Like she is physically violent with him too. Like she is not a great mother. And I think that's where those questions come in, but nature versus nurture kind of argument. But Lynn Ramsey treats it the same way as like Morvan Collar, where like we don't have this outside perspective. It's more of like a character study of like how she sees the world. Mm-hmm. And we only see from Tilda Swinton's perspective, like how this child, even from when it was a baby and just screamed so much that her only relief was to stand next to a jackhammer to oh, not hear yeah. the baby screams for like a blissful few seconds. Or, or scenes where the kid is acting really mean to her. And then as soon as 
the dad played by John C. Riley comes in. He's so happy and chipper and like, how was your day, dad? That kind of manipulative streak. Which persists until like him being a teenager. Like he yeah. never stops. Uh, even when he's a crying baby, the dad enters the room and the baby stops crying immediately. Which what? makes you wonder like, oh, how much of this is in her head? Like does she see Right, that? exactly. We're just seeing, it's not this linear thing. Like we're seeing little snippets and memories. So we don't know, is this how he always was? Or is this just this specific memory that she's held on to, to try to kind of make sense of what her kid became and, and absolving herself of responsibility for him being the way he is. And the way we're introduced to her is as this like social pariah after the school shooting. And it was something I didn't remember until revisiting it this year was like how long it takes for Kevin to be introduced to the narrative. You see the aftermath first. And then eventually like maybe even a half hour into the film, you start to see like from him being conceived with her having sex with John C. Riley for the first time to like the egg being inseminated to him being a baby and then a toddler and then a teenager you know, like you see these like gradual steps in this like sociopathic evil and it's sort of treated even in the conception part as like evil being born. You see this like, microscopic view uh, with this like ominous music and early in the film, I think one of the first shots is her at this like tomato festival in Spain, which is like covered in these red tomatoes that look like almost like the shunting or something like it's like tons of people and like red tomato sauce looks like blood when it kind of reminded me of the Movern collar like the party scene uh where she's at the club like just really saturated color and it gives it this really menacing vibe and also i mentioned like the use of color like the color red i found like when i watched it a second time like the symbolism kind of of these different colors and what they mean. The movie's just saturated with meaning. Well, yeah, like her house is constantly being defaced with red paint from neighbors who hate that she's still there right. uh, to remind her of all the blood that was spilled because of her son. Mm -hmm. But it's really interesting that both Morven Collar and We Need to Talk About Kevin start with those super strong images where like the tomato festival and the creepy party with like the fog light very early in the proceedings, you're like stuck with this like striking thing you have to chew on for the rest of the film and kind of like keep recalling back to like the Bacchanal of that tomato festival. Mm -hmm. And then it's only later on until flashbacks where you start to see like how she got there. Uh, and it becomes almost like conventional in like, I don't want to say like a lifetime movie, but like almost in a melodrama kind of way of like her interacting with Kevin and like what it feels like to be a parent of something that's like hostile to you at all times. And even before Kevin's born, she's in this like yoga studio locker room and she's watching all these other parents stretch out their like pregnant bellies. And they like seem so at home and comfortable with being mothers. And she just feels like alien in that atmosphere. And it's even complicated even more when Kevin's a teenager, she has like a second child that she like very strongly attaches to and like is a perfect angel in the movie's eyes in our eyes because we're seeing it through Tilda Swinton. So you get a lot of like sort of conventional information, but it's a long, weird, surreal road to get there. So we're talking about her like specific style that I think adds to this like surreal element you're talking about is one thing I noticed watching this film again is the way a lot of shots are framed. And actually it's not just this film, it's all her films where there's information just outside of the frame. We're getting one little snippet but it's like always for a purpose. And again, it's like kind of surreal because you don't quite get the whole idea of what's going on. But 
what she chooses not to show is just as important as what she does. So, so like, for example, the scene I, I was talking about where he like is manipulating and being really awesome to his dad while being a jerk to his mom. And a lot of those scenes, we don't even see the dad like in the shot. Like we'll see Kevin next to his father, but John C. Riley's face isn't anywhere on the screen. And again, like that information of like, he's not present. That's his character pretty much is like, he's not really aware of what's going on. He's aloof. Yeah. And so her choice to frame him like outside of Kevin is so, again, like use the word like poetic, but that is poetic filmmaking because it's not giving you all the information, but what it chooses to like leave out adds meaning to it. Yeah, like the most we see from John C. Riley is her, him telling Tilda Swinton she's crazy and like disbelieving her and that her concerns that her son is like a dangerous person are like unfounded, which puts her like daughter she actually like cares a lot about at risk because he's not like reading any of these warning signs, which is like classic horror. Uh, the disbelieving husband while the ghosts are running wild or like, I don't know, even something as far back as like Rosemary's Baby, like there's a vast conspiracy out here oh yeah it's all in your head like kind of gaslighting a little bit like oh no it's fine and i hate to keep bringing up hereditary in this conversation but i watched these two movies like back to back pretty much and they reminded me a lot of each other in that way too where there's like a familial dynamic that's like sort of eating itself alive but he had this like aloof husband who like doesn't want to be involved and like just wants to like brush it off as like this illogical paranoia uh, until it gets too dangerous to ignore anymore and it's like too late everyone's dead well and also like again with hereditary it's like the issues all like stem from the mom and like her side of the family so the dad's not really privy to it he's just like doing what he thinks is best like oh like we should all just get along and talk about it and in that same way john c Riley's character he didn't give birth to this child he's not as connected to it so for him it's just like, like, oh, he's your kid. Like, you should love him, obviously. He's not as in it as she is. Also, she works from home, it seems like. Right, so she spends more time with the kid and knows him more than him. Yeah, like, Kevin will deliberately destroy her stuff and tell her she's stupid. Um, and the dad's not around to witness that. Or, like, Kevin refuses to be potty trained until he's, like, way older than he should be to still be wearing diapers. It's, like, disturbing. And he'll shit himself just to upset her. And as soon as... She's done changing his diaper. He'll stare at her directly and defiantly shit himself a second time to restart the process. Oh, God. True <laughs> horror. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I, I don't have any kids yet, but man, that is like some kind of subterranean horror that I'm, I don't even know if I'm aware of it, but it's definitely there. That is such a scary part of raising children. And if you want to talk about like true, like pure horror, this film also has a sequence I would put up there with the party sequence from Morven Collar where she's driving home on Halloween night, when she's still living alone in this town that hates her. And one of the few, like, non-Roots music soundtrack choices here is Every Day from Buddy Holly. And while she's driving, there's all these, like, kids in these, like, you know, classic Halloween costumes sort of beating on her window in her car and then again in her home, where she's, like, kind of being swarmed. And it's basically just kids asking for candy because it's Halloween. But she's, like, terrified because she's always being persecuted for various mm -hmm. reasons. And there's something really, like, heightened about that tension in that sequence as well that, like, scares me more than, like, most horror films. I mean, I would classify this as a horror film. In the Not that there's some boogeyman chasing you, but it's, again, to compare to Hereditary, it's the horror, like, 
on a gut deeper existential level and i think that's where true horror comes from not some outside force it's the force like inside of you and even though it's framed as like a familial drama in some respects it's also calling back to older horror narratives like the bad seed or the omen and the babadook came out way long after this but it's like this concept of this like evil child this thing that's supposed to be innocent and ready to learn already seeming like it knows everything and it's like ready to attack you one um detail i forgot about that watching it again really kind of had an impact on me is like the way he chooses to do the massacre is with the bow and arrow that his mom got him because the one moment where they actually connect i think she's reading him like robin hood or something he's really drawn to the bow and arrow and it seems like they're genuinely connecting for one so she buys him this thing out of love the one thing she does out of love is what he chooses to do this massacre just to antagonize her like even the school shooting aspect with the arrow i don't think had anything to do with him resenting fellow students or anything the result he wanted was for her to be treated like the pariah that we see her treated like throughout the rest of the film like kevin ultimately wins in the way that he just ruins her life thoroughly which is what he at least from our perspective is what he was meant to do from the second he was conceived and then the very end where she visits him in prison a few years later i don't remember the exact line but i think he tells her that he doesn't really remember like why he did like it's not something he consciously even is aware of it's just was like you said the reason he was brought into this world was to ruin her i think she asked him why and he says i used to think i knew but i don't anymore yeah that's it which what does is that mean? Terif- terrifying. <laughs> like, I, again, I, I took that as like it was some higher calling that I wasn't even consciously aware of to ruin you. And that movie was seven years ago. And uh, we just got Little Ramsey's newest film in the theaters earlier this year with uh, You Were Never Really Here. After dropping out of that Western Jane's Got a Gun, she went into another genre film. It's like sort of dad exploitation, like crime feature a lot like Liam Neeson's like Taken type movies. Obviously parallels like Taxi Driver. Taxi Driver is even more of a specific reference than even the Liam Neeson ones because both Taken and Taxi Driver deal with like human trafficking. Mm -hmm. But Taxi Driver has this like sort of child prostitution focus and it's also got this larger like political conspiracy attached to it as well. And also the just the central character is being like an outcast on the fringe of society that is sort of this anti-hero that you like root for, but you know he has some like really dark shit going on in his psyche. And I think that's what's really different about this than like the regular like Liam Neeson type movies is that this is not a macho like power fantasy at all. There's like no catharsis. In the Liam Neeson movies, he has a problem that he like beats into submission with his fists, mm-hmm. even though he's like an older man. <laughs> Joaquin Phoenix stars in this film as like a sort of mercenary uh, ex-military guy that rescues children from these like child prostitution, human trafficking rings. And he's kind of overweight and lives with his mom. Yeah, he's not this like alpha male hero in the way that Liam Neeson is in those movies. Yeah, he's like very emotionally dependent on the mother he lives with and in some scenes where you would want him to get his revenge by beating someone to death, there'll be like a tender exchange of like holding hands and crying or like, uh, he just really wants someone to kiss him on the cheek and tell him it's going to be okay. That specific scene where he kills one of the men that was sent to kill him. And as he's dying, they hold hands and 
sing a song. They sing, uh, I've been to paradise, but I haven't been to me. <laughs> yeah. Just a kind of her, her style. Like it's violent and fucked up, but also tender and beautiful at the same time. And the backstory, as far as like this character study goes, cause this is, I would say probably closest to Morven collar as far as her like style is where it's like focused on this one person's psyche and the story around it is not very linear in the way that you could make a more like A to B story out of, we need to talk about Kevin and Ratcatcher. I think the plot in this one is, is there like, it gives you just enough information to have a clear plot, but it's not really about the specifics of the plot. It's about his character and his character's interaction with this child that is in the sex trafficking ring that has also gone through trauma and seems like they have some common bond, even though it's never really spoken. But that seems like a central emotional core of the movie. Which, a lot like Ratcatcher, it's like two broken people in this like awful world like connecting, where he's supposed to be the big macho man that comes in and saves the day. And really what he needs is for her to tell him, like, it's okay, Joe. It's going to be okay. There's no catharsis in any traditional sort of macho beating your problems to pulp kind of way. Even though he tries to go around smashing everything into pulp with his ball-peen hammer, which is like his weapon of choice. The other catharsis you get is more in these, like, tender exchanges between humans. And you also see, like, as his violent rampage keeps escalating, his mental health deteriorates. So he's not this, like, stone-cold killer i think the killing does take an effect on him which you know at the end of the movie becomes very clear that he's not in a good mental state and there's these three past tragedies like one from iraq when he was in at war on tour of duty and then one from when he was an fbi agent i mean presumably after the war but we don't really know and then also this like domestic violence burst from his own father when he was a child Mm -hmm. and we only get those in glimpses as he like recognizes images from them throughout his like new pursuit as like this mercenary for hire. And that's also with him like suffocating himself. Uh, there's a lot of scenes where he is like putting a bag. It's like a dry cleaning plastic bag. And it, it's almost, you know, like the only way he can feel alive is to come close to death. So, like you know, suffocates from, himself. Yeah. You know, from the get go, like this guy is not right in the head. And then, as the movie goes along, these little snippets of memories from his past kind of illuminates like why he is the way he is. But it's never given to you in like a really clear way, which is totally how Ramsey does most things in her film. And there's like a specificity to the images too, like the ball peen hammer he uses to kill people when he has to. It's like a really specific weapon or like the dry cleaning bag. That's what he likes to suck on to suffocate himself to feel better. There's like a specificity to that that ties back to a childhood trauma. There's a few sequences where he's crushing jelly beans between his fingers and you just sort of watch that outer layer of sugar peel off the bean. It's like really weirdly specific imagery that sort of sticks in your mind and that sort of fills in the gaps left by like the plot, which is not nearly as structural as you would think. Your mind also fills in the gaps with the violence itself, which Ramsey obscures from the camera. And I also think like, again movie has little dialogue but the music is such a prominent part of it that it kind of lets you meditate on these general feelings you're getting I, I watched an interview with her where she talked about how she learned from someone else and she this is like 
one of her approaches to filmmaking is that if there's a lot going on visually, the music should be kept to a minimum and then vice versa. That if the music is really like catchy and whatever you want to let the visuals kind of be a little less action oriented. So kind of always giving the audience time to really like think about and feel what she's putting on screen. And usually I feel like her music is very like pop music, needle drop kind of stuff. And here we have like a score crafted by Johnny Greenwood from Radiohead, uh, who's done a lot of really good scores before, but his stuff is usually a kind of classical music. It feels like, like regular, you know, string instruments. And it felt like in this one, it was a little more synthy and actually sounded more like Tom York's like solo stuff. Totally. As far as like the, the drum machine kind of material. Which, you know, fits right in with, like, Drive and Good Time and all these other, like, crime thrillers that she's playing with. The genre structure of that. But in this case, it's made weird, eerie, like, not satisfying, like, unnerving, you know? Which feels like a huge departure from, like, the sort of, I don't want to say ironic, but sort of, like, incongruous pop music that plays in, like, the older films. Oh, and, like, in Movern Collar, where, yeah, you're getting these really awesome, tender songs with these, like, pretty messed up images and then um we need to talk about kevin when tilda swinton's driving around her town after the horrific thing that ruined her life uh there's a lot of like weird roots music that doesn't quite fit in see like washington phillips uh singing like these gospel songs or um mule skinner blues is playing like on her drive to work she uses like pop music in this like sort of disarming way in older films where i can only remember two instances in you were never really here where she does that. And it's for a very like specific reason, I think. Well, one of them is um, diegetic, right? One of them is in the actual child prostitution bordello. Uh, they were playing this one pop song, which it's escaping me right now, but it's a very popular like 60s pop song. And then at the end, there's like sort of this like ironic humor. If I knew you were coming, I'd bake a cake pop song, which like puts this like really sickly sense of humor on top of a whole like tragedy of the film and in both cases it doesn't feel like you know tarantino that's so cool to see those two tones mix it's more of this like really disgusting it's makes like you feel sick to your stomach really the feeling you're getting is the opposite of the way this song should be making me feel you know which is leads to some like dissonance inside of you and the way the violence is shown is also dissonant as well and obscured a lot of it is through security footage Kind of the same way in Cachet, and actually even more so in Nocturama uh, that we talked about earlier a couple episodes ago. You see this sort of like fractured version of the events of Joe going into this bordello and killing everyone inside. Where like your mind sort of fills in the gaps of like what you're seeing where you feel like you're seeing a lot more violence than you are. So on the one hand, a lot of the violence is off screen. And like you said, you kind of fill in the gaps. But with that scene, it kind of feels like a snuff film in a way like it's not stylized at all it's just like oh i'm watching security footage of someone getting beaten with a hammer and it really like affects you more because it feels less like you're watching a film and you're really just like on youtube watching some messed up video but the number of cuts and like the distance from it is very disorienting it reminded me a lot of the shower scene in psycho which famously has like an insane number of setups and cuts to where like censors thought that they saw naked flesh and saw a knife entering a body 
and all this gore that actually wasn't in the film. Like, it's like your imagination sort of fills it in. And, like, rewatching this film a couple times in the theater, like, the second time it's, like, more conscious. Like, oh, I actually didn't see what I thought I saw there. Not to say that there's no, like, direct blows to the head and stuff in this film. Like, it is brutal when it needs to be. But it's very minimized, I think. Like, it's not over the top with its violence. It doesn't try to give you any pleasure or catharsis or relief from the violence being enacted because the sort of brutality is never a good thing. And I also, I think, talking about her work as a whole, and I find that she picks really good actors because, again, her stuff is, like, very light on dialogue and heavy on image, and there's a lot of close-ups of actors' faces, and you just kind of have to read their emotions. And I find that, like, with Tilda Swinton and Joaquin Phoenix... And Samantha Morton. And Samantha Morton. She picks actors that can evoke so much just from the way they look and even in Ratcatcher, the boy that plays james i don't know if he was a professional actor or not from what i understand they interviewed like hundreds of kids to get the right kid for that film and he was chosen because he was shy and she had all these like child actors that were like performing in this like sort of stage play and he was like an amateur kid and he was shy and didn't really want to be on camera and that's why she chose him because he was like had a lot internally going on that she could use for like reaction shots and that kind of thing. And you see that in the film. It, it's like a slice of life. Like it kind of puts you there in the moment with these characters. You don't feel like it's an actor playing someone. And I think she does a really good job of picking actors that can do that. It's like Refn working with uh, Ryan Gosling a few times, like because Gosling's just entertaining as like a face. Yeah, he's sort of a blank canvas. Yeah. Whereas like so, I think like Tilda Swinton. For example, like she can evoke so many emotions with just a slight change in facial expression. She has a really good eye for picking those people out. And Joaquin Phoenix is kind of buried under a beard in this film. But there's something like vulnerable to his eyes through that sort of like gruff masculine exterior. He also like weirdly trained his body into this like incomprehensible mess in this film. Like a blob of it. Like (laughs) he looks really strong, but a little flabby and like not proportioned he's like muscular arms and like sides and then like fatty pecs and like gut (laughs) and it just looks upsetting like just watching him shirtless in this film is as unnerving as an image as anything else ramsey's done you know but it's something he did for the role and i don't know why he made those choices but they definitely like stick in your mind well yeah it's like he looks like someone that would be strong enough to beat up all these people but it's not like he doesn't seem like he train like he goes to the gym to do it. It's just inherently who he is. So that that's interesting too. And I will say, I think she does trust her actors to make choices that affect the film in that way. Like for instance, you know, Joaquin Phoenix, I'm not sure she necessarily gave him like the way directors would give their actors like instructions on how to like shape their body for the role. Even though he's a man who transforms physically for roles all the time. Like I have to imagine that was something he did on his own. And also in this film, probably one of the reasons Psycho came to mind was because his mother falls asleep watching Psycho on the TV. And then he sort of brings back the motif, Joaquin Phoenix, of making the Psycho shower stabs a few times. Because, you know, living with a senile woman who he loves but is falling apart is frustrating. And that's like his relief kind of joke is like joking about stabbing her which is very intense uh but apparently that connection was ad-libbed like ramsey never told this actor and she was the evil witch from dead silence 
which is like her evil doll movie I really like. But she just sort of said Psycho out of nowhere, and that sort of like worked its way into the script, and they called back to it three or four times. And I feel like she has this sort of confidence in these people she's casting to sort of shape the story on their own as well, which helps in not having to adapt a novel directly page for page. Because even this movie was based on a novella that has a more traditional narrative that she just sort of like drifted away from and condensed into this like weird collection of images and sounds. Well, and I think to kind of summarize, that's her power as a filmmaker is that I think she understands why novels work and why they're a different art form than film. So she's able to read these novels and get the true essence of the feeling in it, but then translate that over to film in a really powerful way. I think in general too, like novels are not nearly as good for adaptations than like something like a short story or early on we talked about how video games are actually kind of fun for adaptations Mm -hmm. because they don't really like subscribe a very specific idea of what you have to do to do it successfully. Like it's like a rough sketch that you can build off of, but she has a really good eye for ignoring what is quote unquote required to make it work. Uh, and she sort of like takes the parts that she thinks are essential and then builds her own aesthetic around that. And like you said, still stays true to like the tone, but creates a whole new artistic project out of that like germ of an, of an idea, which is like super admirable. Currently right now, she has two projects that she wants to get off the ground that she's talking about anyway. I have no idea how many projects she like has in mind, but uh, one is a comedy, which what? That's so interesting because so far... She seems to be on this very strict, like, thematic path. And comedy seems like the antithesis of everything she's done before. In a way. But I do think that there's, like, a subversive humor to all of her films. It's almost like the way Shushu is funny. Like, when you listen to a Shushu record, like, it's so depressing and grimy and, like, animalistic that it's funny. Like, it's sort of indulging in these, like, really dark impulses but in this like way that's like straight from the id and there's like a dark sense of humor to it uh like even we need to talk about kevin that scene where he shits himself while staring directly into her eyes like what a fucked up act but also i laughed (laughs) (laughs) like it's it's like darkly humorous to me so I, i could see her doing a comedy but like like you said like an outright comedy where like jokes are the main goal that seems really strange it would have to be some kind of pitch black comedy her second project that she wants to get off the ground is this adaptation of Moby Dick set in space. Uh, so it's like a sort of bigger budget sci-fi picture with like a creature out in the wild. That's like this Moby oh, Dick yeah. style, like large organism. That sounds good. I mean, either way, I'm totally on board with anything she wants to do. I trust her as a filmmaker at this point. Yeah. Like out of the past projects that didn't happen, like between lovely bones and, Jane's got a gun. I think her adaptation of Lovely Bones would have been awesome, by the way. I think so, too. But I also think that Lovely Bones feels like territory she's explored before. Yeah. Uh, Like, especially between Ratcatcher and You Were Never Really Here. Like, I feel like I've gotten that vibe. Totally. Uh, Where Jane's got a gun, her doing a Western seems like a little more, like, adventurous. And I think it would have been some kind of, like, avant-garde, like, unforgiven style, like, philosophical... Uh, dark western i could see her doing that really well too yeah and i think out of the two projects she has proposed i would probably be more into the moby dick in space one because what the fuck like moby dick and do you have me at moby dick in space (laughs) (laughs) 
But uh, yeah, like we said at the top of this conversation, I think just knowing that she's out there making these uncompromising movies in a time where this kind of like anything goes, you do whatever you want without any outsider input filmmaking is dwindling as far as like financial resources goes, which is why we only have four of these movies to discuss, which is disgusting. I find her like extremely admirable and maybe even one of my favorite filmmakers in retrospect, like going back over these, like there's few people I can say right now that I'm more excited to see a new film from at any time. I agree with you a hundred percent. So why did it take us so long to catch up? We need to talk about Kevin was like five years ago. I saw that movie. Like, why did it take me so long to get here? I don't know why it just didn't occur to me. Like, let me see what else she's done. I was so taken back by how awesome it was. I think I just maybe needed like five years to process it. Yeah. (laughs) Before I was like, I need to see what came before this. It's like shameful. (laughs) I feel like embarrassed that it took me so long, but I'm totally, we're we're totally on board. Yeah. Well, as far as like things to check out for like swampflix.com this month, we will be at the American library association's annual conference, uh, last weekend of June. I think it's like June 22nd through 26th. And we're tabling zines. Um, I made a whole new John Waters zine. It's like a collected critical writings on his work. I got a sneak preview and it looked pretty awesome. <laughs> and we'll have all the older stuff we haven't sold from like past no cases as well. So if you happen to be a librarian or just in New Orleans, come by and see our zine table at that conference. Sounds awesome. Yeah, man. And we'll see you all in a couple weeks. Bye. Bye. Bye.